Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My guest today is Jack Guinness. Jack is a model, journalist, author and creative director and is one of the most influential voices in British fashion and the LGBTQ community perhaps best known as the founder of the Queer Bible. He began his career as a model and starred in global campaigns for the likes of L'Oreal, Dunhill and Dolce & Gabbana. Behind the lens, he regularly contributed to the Sunday Times style, Italian Vogue, The Guardian and Tatler as a style and fashion commentator. Today, Jack is dedicated as the founder of the Queer Bible, the online community that celebrates the works and lives of trailblazing members of the global queer community. Jack's debut book, The Queer Bible, was published in 2019 and featured contributions from the likes of Sir Elton John and Tam France, to name a few. As someone who is a pioneer in bringing the queer community together to tell their stories and stand tall, bringing their narratives to the forefront and to be celebrated, I cannot wait to find out all about his Sliding Doors moments. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Jack. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Are you excited to talk all about your life and your journey so far? I am, but there's a little bit of me that's kind of terrified because I used to live with so many regrets and I think I finally got my head around my own journey and my own life. So to go back and be like, oh, what could have happened at that moment is scary. And also in the movie, you know, when she splits into two characters, yeah, doesn't one of them die? Yes, I've always thought about this. It does. There's a lot of theories and thoughts around kind of, is it, you know, is that her real life? Is it not? Um, so yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of like... I just don't, I don't want to die during the podcast. <laughs> don't I you also, worry. I don't mind if I get her short, choppy blonde haircut yes. while we're talking, but I just yeah, don't yeah. want to die. Do you remember no, every, that's girl, fine. every girl I know got that haircut? Oh my God, they did such a 90s classic haircut. Um it's probably going to come back now it's probably everything else in the 90s is a hundred percent and do not worry we you will not be dying during the podcast and you'll enjoy it you'll love looking back retrospectively at the moments in your life and I can't wait to chat about them and what I wanted to start asking you and I'm sorry to ask you because I'm sure everybody does but are you part of the Guinness family you know your name is so well known I've got to ask the question Yeah, no, I don't mind talking about it at all. Yeah, so my great, 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 great grandfather was Arthur Guinness, who founded the beer can. Say the beer, sorry, I said the beer can. (laughs) And he's he's got his signature on the beer. Um, But then there are different strands of the Guinness family. They're the very rich ones. And I come from the religious um, wing of the family. Mm -hmm. So I've got the name, I've got the heritage. I just don't have the cash. But the name is great. The name's still great. And what was life like growing up for you? Kind of what was what was Jack like as a child and kind of what was family life like? 
Yeah, so my dad's a vicar. Um, really? All his bro- yeah, all his brothers are vicars. Wow. My grandfather was a vicar. All his brothers were vicars. Every man in my family going back four generations is a vicar. So not only am I not a vicar, but I wrote a book called The Queer Bible. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit weird, but I, I do feel that kind of the weight of kind of religious history kind of bearing down on me. And it's something that I've especially um, exploring my 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 gay identity and my queer identity has been something that I've really kind of had to work through. Mm-hmm. But because my dad's a vicar, we we lived, we were kind of in two churches growing up. We lived in Brixton um, in the middle of a council estate for the first 10 years of my life. And then he moved to, we moved as a family to Belgravia um, and he became Margaret Thatcher's vicar. So wow. I've, I've lived in two very different kind of sides of London which I think is good because um, it's given me a kind of wealth of experience, but it's also quite weird. And it, it comes out in me when I get a bit tipsy, my accent either goes very South London yeah. or very posh. And uh, often people are like, where are you from? Like, <laughs> which is the real accent? Oh, I love that. And one interesting kind of story to hear, because especially it's not just your dad was a vicar, like if there were so many vicars in your family. And what did you want to be when you were growing up? What were your aspirations? I think I wanted to be a monk for a really? little bit, which is quite wow. weird. Yeah. And then I rebelled and kind of went wild like all teenagers should. And weirdly, through my work with the Queer Bible, I've kind of come back round to kind of being more of a vicar. Like I, I do lots of events with the Queer Bible. And one of the ones we did recently is is readings from queer mm-hmm. literature. And we do it in a beautiful chapel at the House of St. Barnabas in Soho. And so this church gets filled up with a really diverse representative group of queer people who previously wouldn't have maybe felt yeah. welcome in a space like that. They felt excluded from it. And I stand at the front kind of introducing everything and I was doing it the other day and I was like oh my gosh I've I've literally turned into my dad I'm standing at the front of church (laughs) preaching um but it's just to a very different community but it's weird I guess uh we always turn into our parents eventually don't we (laughs) you bring up a really great point because I think religion has so many different facets to it and I think you know there is the religious side but there's the community angle there's the, the traditions and you know what you do with the queer bible brings together people which is probably exactly what your dad does it is. I mean, I remember one of my earliest memories is seeing my dad at the front of church and he was wearing his cassock. And I remember running up to the front. I must have been really like a toddler and kind of hiding in his cassocks. And I was looking back, thinking back on that the other day. And I was like, my dad was basically a drag performer. He yeah. put on a dress, stood in front of a crowd and like G'd them up emotionally. You know, he'd be with them in all these big moments, you know, when they're b- baptizing their kids and burying people and marrying people and I was like wow my dad's basically a, yeah. a drag queen but it's true <laughs> we can interpret everything to be kind of linked together in some kind of point and I we we spoke a bit before the podcast about how our paths have probably crossed in the fashion world before and you were so influential and such a big part of the fashion and party scene in the noughties and has fashion and style always been such an integral part to your life yeah definitely I think growing up in in Brixton, especially in the 80s, and being different from other kids, being kind of really sensitive, quite particular, and 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 I had a really hard time at school. I really longed for something else, and I kind of entered into a fantasy world and an escape. And for me, it was it was fashion, art, and film that offered that mental yeah. escape from difficult situations. And I think a lot of queer people are attracted to the the glamour of fashion because it's it's protective it's about putting on armor it's about feeling fabulous and I think if you feel less than inside there is a temptation to make your outside look as brilliant and glittery as possible but sometimes that glamour is an illusion and the the gap between how you're presenting to the external world and how worthless you feel inside is huge. And so I've definitely tried to close that gap. So I think maybe, I mean, there was a really healthy bit of me that just loved mm-hmm. fashion. I love beautiful clothes. I love the feeling it gives people. Um, I love the power of fashion, but there was definitely a slightly unhealthy side of me that was attracted to like the bright lights of the city and fame and glamour. Cause glamour isn't really yeah. real, is it? It's kind of glittering and it's ephemeral and it disappears. So I think I've, I've become a healthier version of my younger self, yeah. if that makes sense. But yeah, I, I love that era. I mean, growing up in London, it was 
there was an incredible gay scene as a teenager. As I got a bit older into my 20s, there was an amazing music scene. All my friends were in bands, like the new rave scene was, was going on. Vice was just starting up. East London was exploding. So it was a really exciting um, period for fashion, for music. It, they, they all kind of intersected in a really exciting way. And it was pre-social media. So if you wanted to meet people like yeah. you, you had to go out. You had to go out and build meet them. You had to, I, I remember going out. You had to build connections. And I remember like going to cool clubs and you'd, you'd see that gang that were the epicenter of that scene. You'd be like, I want to yeah. get in with them, make friends with them. And then you'd start going to the same club nights and you'd get to know each other. I think that has probably served me really well in my career because I was used to going out and by myself and just meeting people and making those connections. And then through my work with the Queer Bible, I've managed to turn those connections into something yeah. meaningful instead of just going around and, you know, giving people <laughs> double kisses. And but it is, it is, it's your journey. And you, you bring up such great points there about fashion, about, you know, sometimes the people that dress, you know, that look so confident in the way that they dress are often the people that are the most insecure, but it's finding your balance and finding, you know, fashion is fun. It's meant to be fun. And it's, it's a way to express yourself. And, you know, I know I've said this before in the podcast, you know, I sit in bed at night thinking about what I'm going to wear the next day, because it means a lot to me what I wear when I go to work. And yeah, because it empowers me to feel good and you dress how, you know, it's weird that putting on a dress can just make you feel brilliant. And I love that you've kind of have that throughout your journey. And, you know, we mentioned it before that you have had such a brilliant modeling career as well. And you must have traveled all around the world, seen some amazing things, done some amazing things. And I wanted to ask you, what's kind of the best story from that time in your life? I mean, it's a bit of a blur. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, it, it was, it was wild. It was, I met some incredible, incredible people. Um, I mean, there's so many stories. So, I mean, so many awful things happened. So many brilliant things happened. Um, I think the main thing is just that I, I met incredible people because it's weird. In, in most businesses, you're just meeting other people that do a similar job to you. In fashion, you're maybe one of the only model or you're one of two, or if you're in a catwalk show, I don't know how many people there'll be, but you're with hair yeah. people, you're with makeup artists, you're with photographers, you're with casting directors. There's so many people with different skill sets that you get to hang out with who are all top of their game. And so I think the mistake a lot of models make is that they think their careers are going to last forever and they don't learn from the people mm -hmm. around them. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a busybody <laughs> and I'm a bit nosy. So I'm always asking people I for advice and, and asking for funny stories. Yeah. And as you say, like we can build connection with anyone. It doesn't matter. And like, you know, it's whether the person that you get your coffee from in the morning, whether it's anybody, it doesn't, it, that's kind of how, but that's probably how you've built such an amazing, you know, network of people, but also friends along the way. And it's, it's so important to kind of make sure that we open our eyes to everyone that's around us. And do you feel kind of like now with the queer Bible that you're in kind of a second stage of your life? Cause we're going to talk a lot more about kind of how you started the queer Bible when we talk about your moments, but you know, this is something that you've really learned from loads of different things in your life. And then you've kind of brought it all together to help other people. Um, and do you like, what are you most proud of? And kind of, do you feel like this is kind of a new phase for you? Yeah, I th what, yeah it definitely is a, is a new phase, but it's a continuation. I think every phase of your life builds from yeah. the last for better or worse. Either you're turning away from something, but you're always responding to something. There's always an evolution. And for me, we've kind of touched on this, you know, for however many years, well over a decade, I was selling mm -hmm. things, really. I was selling myself, I was selling products, and it was always centering me. And I think that can burn you out. And I think it can also make you feel quite empty after a while. So for me, doing the Queer Bible was about using all those connections I've made, using all the kind of editorial skills I learned, my evil PR brain of how to sell products. And then instead of using it to center myself and push myself to the front, it's about elevating yeah. other people, allowing them to tell their stories in their own voices. And often these are, these are marginalized people. These are people that haven't had their stories told. They're, they've had their stories erased or hidden. So it's so nice it not being about mm -hmm. me anymore and about, you know, it's, it's ironic because I am the face of it. So I'm the one that goes out and talks about it, but I'm pointing yeah. people in the direction of the website and in the direction of the book to go in and hear other voices and other stories which are really different to mine and really unique and and I come to it as very humbly and I come to it as someone that wants to learn 
about different experiences um, and different histories and different cultures. So yeah, it is. It, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of stuff. I feel like I've, I loved all my work in the fashion industry. I still work in the fashion industry. I love it. But for me, it was about kind of spinning mm-hmm. that into something really meaningful that wasn't like me, 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 me. I've had enough of me. Yeah, but it's an evolution, as you said. And, you know, it's it's something where you're really kind of taking everything that you've learned and you're, you know, you're helping other people find their tribe. And like, you know, it, it's, it's such an amazing thing to do. And what's the thing that you're proudest of so far that you've achieved with the Queer Bible? Um, I, I did a lot of book tours and literary festivals and I had a few parents, straight parents coming up to me saying that they'd bought the book for their child and it had allowed them to have conversations with their children that they they hadn't had before and they hadn't felt able to, they hadn't had the vocabulary to have. And the idea that I could have, any work I'd done, yeah. even in a tiny way, could have improved a relationship or made life easier for the parents and then the kid who, who might be suffering by themselves exploring their sexuality or gender identity is the most humbling, incredible thing. So if the book and my work has, has, has done anything to allow young people to feel seen and connected to their tribe and their history and their culture and made them stand a bit taller and prouder and realise that they're descended from the most incredible, fabulous, intelligent, bravest human beings to walk the face of yeah. the planet, that's pretty yeah. amazing. It certainly beats walking down a runway, even though I love sat- sashaying about. <laughs> no, but as you say, you can do it all, though. And, like, if you can help one person... I am, I everyone am. does it all. And it's so empowering. And it's it's a brilliant, brilliant um, initiative. And we'll talk more about it in your moments. And before we do talk about your moments... So my first question was going to be, have you seen the film? But I think we've uh, established that you have. What? We've yeah, covered we've covered that. that. I haven't just seen it. I'm a, a fan. fan. I'm a massive love it, fan. Love it. We all love a bit of GP's uh, short haircut. So when it comes to the sliding doors theory, what are your beliefs? Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Do you believe in fate, timing, coincidence? What are your thoughts? I believe in coincidence. I believe, you know, too many weird coincidences have happened in my life. Like even this week, I've been thinking about something and then I've got an email about that very thing that I wanted to happen. Like too many strange things happen, especially when you look back with hindsight, you realise the the interconnectedness of, of many things. I hate when people say everything happens for a reason because awful mm-hmm. things happen. And... And, uh, you know, really tragic things that shouldn't happen do happen. So I don't subscribe to that take on life. What I do think, though, is that you can take good from bad situations. And it's actually our responsibility to try and take good from bad situations. I'm like, I know this is going back to my kind of religious upbringing, but give me 10 seconds. The story of Joseph in the Bible, in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know, when he gets chucked down the well... He gets sold into into bondage and slavery. All these terrible things happened to him and they were awful and they shouldn't have happened. But then because of that chain of events, instead of like crumbling, he pushes through and ends up becoming like the Pharaoh. And that's a really lovely metaphor for us that bad things do happen and they shouldn't happen. And some very unfair, horrific things happen in life. They've happened in my life. They happened in my friends' lives. But from that point moving forward, how are you going to respond from it? Is there any good you can take from it? Is there any, any, can you basically, excuse my French, but can you spin shit Mm -hmm. into gold? I think that's our challenge on this planet. So I don't believe everything happens for a reason, but I believe that once things have happened, you can add reason and meaning to them. Does that Massively. make sense? Massively. I think that's a brilliant way to put it because you're right. Like I think, and everyone believes in different kind of, it's all similar theories, but it's the way you believe in it. And you're right. So many bad things happen in the world. So many good things happen. And it's, we can't change the past, but we can change how we kind of react to it. And you're right. And I think we've had people speak on the podcast about, you know, deaths and all that type of thing. And, you know, 10 years later, they're able to take that step back and be like, that was a really shit thing that happened to me. But what can I take out of it? What can I learn? What can I take forward? And I think it's, it's a great way to live by. And I, I think the danger is that when you look back at these sliding doors moments, that you get stuck mm. in them and you get stuck in, you get paralysed with the what if. There is no what if. There is no Gwyneth Paltrow with a choppy little haircut 
living a separate life in tandem to you. There isn't. There is just yeah. what happened and there is just what's going to happen. So I think you need to not get stuck in the past and paralyzed with, why did I do that? What if I'd done this? Because I definitely used to do that. I used to have a really overactive brain in that respect. And I used to go over past mistakes or what I perceived to be mistakes and torture myself with them. So I think while we do this exercise, I will be cautious to look back and take lessons rather than be like, why did that happen? Because I think that's not healthy. But I think looking back and learning lessons potentially is. But come back to me at the end of the podcast. I could be a complete mess. This could ruin my life. Well, I'll be careful with when I ask you the what ifs at the end of each of your moments. Yeah, just be I'll be, be very gentle. gentle. So we'll go on to talking about your moments now. So your first moment is going to Cambridge. So was really bad for my mental health and I spent years recovering. Not sure it was the best decision. So... I like having moments and decisions that we can reflect on that aren't sometimes the good things that have happened in life. They can sometimes be the bad things that happen. So I'm really interested to find out um, about this moment. So do you want to explain kind of why going to Cambridge was such a sliding doors moment for you? Sure. And this wasn't a day trip. I went there for yes, university. Yes, sorry, I just need yes, sorry. I, I wasn't on a coach to all the sandwiches <laughs> and it all went and I got food poisoning and I fell in the canal. Um no, so this sounds like one of those really braggy ones when people are like, I had too many ponies growing up. Like, oh, woe is me. Like, obviously going to Cambridge is an incredible privilege and getting any kind of education, let alone a further education, something like that is amazing. So I'm checking, checking my privilege. It was incredible. It was an amazing opportunity. I had a really tough time at school. Um, I got really badly bullied. I, I left school for a, about a year when I was about 14. Everyone wrote me off. Like no one thought I'd even get my GCSEs. Then I managed to keep going, did my GCSEs, did my A-levels. No one thought I'd make it to the exams. No one thought I'd be able to do it. My mental health was in a really bad place. I had crippling anxiety, really serious depression. It was, I was very traumatized. And so just no one expected me to kind of make it yeah. really. I mean, I literally make it, let alone go to Cambridge. So when the offer came, there was this sense of like, oh my God, I can't believe Jack even finished school, let alone is going to university. And there was a sense of like, if you can, you should. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of like shoulds in our life. Like we're always told to, to go for the best and often... What is the best isn't what we think the best is. It's what society tells mm. us the best is. It's what our friends or our family tell us is the best. Well, it's we're also always... what's the best for you. The best isn't a general right. term. But, 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 but we're told it is. Yeah, exactly. We're told that like, yeah. looking a certain way, everyone should want to look a certain way. Everyone should want to act a certain way. Everyone should want to get a big house. Everyone should want to get married. Everyone should want to have mm -hmm. a kid. Everyone should want to go to university. Everyone should want to go to the university that society says is the best. And so I had this sense of like, I've been offered this amazing opportunity. I have to take it because... It, it, surely this is the best fit for everyone, but not, no one thing can fit everyone. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's doesn't make logical sense. Yeah. But at the time I thought it could uh, and should rather. So I went and it was amazing. And I met some incredible people. I studied English literature and I, I love reading. I love literature. So it was great in that respect. I learned from some of the brightest, best minds in the bloody country, mm -hmm. but the workload and the stress and the lack of kind of pastoral care was was so extreme that it broke me. And I, I wasn't in a good state when I went there anyway. I, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't at my best. And and I, the thing is though, a lot I was thinking about this when I when you asked me the question. I think the majority of my friends had some kind of mental health crisis while they were there. Really? The majority. And I, I want to kind of say everyone. Yeah. Everyone I know had a wobble. Some quite serious wobble. That's such like a kind of, like my what my dad would call a serious mental yeah. breakdown. And he's <laughs> just a just wobble. having a bit of a wobble. Yeah, he's sat in a bath full of baked beans, shaving yeah. his eyebrows <laughs> off, crying. Um, but yeah, and I, and I, and I think it's a very extreme um, way of doing things like my friends that went to other universities that were really good doing similar courses um, had a great time and and didn't the pressure didn't affect them in quite the same way and there wasn't such pressure so for me when I graduated it took me quite a few years to kind of pull myself back together and I and it was really tough and then brilliantly modeling came along and I know this sounds really weird but it was 
a really good job for someone that was having a bit of a mental health crisis. Because well, it was probably just a bit of a release. It was, but also, I know people are going to hate me for saying this, but like, you go on castings, right? So you're on the tube all day. You can kind of be quite depressed if you can get yourself out of bed, which was hard. Like yeah. when I was really bad, I couldn't get out of bed. But on the days when I could, I'd go to castings. You only have to pull yourself together for about a minute and a half when you go in the door. So I could be outside having a panic attack. I'd put my game face on. I'd go in, charm the pants off them for a minute and a half, and then come out completely exhausted, freak out. And then you could go back to bed. And then when you did get a job, you the money was really good. Yeah. So you could work like one or two days. And then you just have to pull it together for the shoot. And so it's really strange, but it kind of saved me because I don't know how I would have managed having a normal nine to five job at that time. But as we said, not one size fits all. That's part of your journey. And I wanted to take it back to kind of the Cambridge decision, because I remember when, like my sister, for example, when when you're kind of um, applying for Oxbridge, the, the, the thing is you can't say no if you get in. If you, don't, if you get in to do something, you have to say yes. And you've already then got that pressure before you've even started. I remember she didn't want to go and we were praying when the letter came that she didn't get in and she didn't. And she was so happy because she didn't want to go there. So I, I get that whole feeling. And I wanted to ask you, because I was under the impression that you kind of would have said, you know, you had family pressure to go there and there was an expectation, you know, do you remember the decision of kind of saying, I'm going to go? And do, was that a decision that you made? Was it a decision you made like collectively? I remember me and my mum talked about it a lot. My big brother had gone. Um, he's not very arty. He, he's like a kind of more maths brain. Um, and, and I remember there was that slight feeling of like this. Also, like we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Yeah. Like... Life is really competitive and difficult. And I get why parents and family would want you to take yeah. it. Because it does open doors 100%. for you. I mean, I'd, admittedly, I pissed up the wall by going off and being a model and no one even asked me if I'd passed my 11 plus yeah. that, that I went to Cambridge. In fact, it was a dark secret yeah. for years. I didn't want anyone <laughs> want to know to that I could read. No, just pretend to be a stupid model yeah. and um, you'll get away with murder. But but yeah, it it... it, it it is a it's a privilege to actually say no mm -hmm. to something like that yeah. really because because you it is it, scary because i wasn't from a position where i was like oh my parents are loaded i don't have to work like it it it, it was something that it would be really terrifying to say no to when you need every chance you can get you know i'm a i'm a i'm a very privileged person in many many ways and I'm self-made. And I think both those things can can coexist. You know, I, I have all sorts of privileges. I'm a white, cis, gay man that grew up in central London, that got scholarships to really good schools, um, that had supportive parents in some respects. Yeah. And, and so I had loads of privileges, but it, the world is a competitive, scary place. So as aware I am of those privileges, I was also aware that I needed to take every opportunity I could get. You know, I... I used everything I had in my life to get to where I am. I, you know, I've, I've, I've used how I looked, look, I used my last name. I've used any little thing yeah. I could have to get to where I am. So looking back, I don't judge my younger self for saying yes. I just wish I'd known at kind of what cost it would be to my mental health. Yeah, and as you said before, every experience we learn from, whether it be good, bad, and although you kind of look back at this as a decision that you're not sure was right for you, do you feel like you've been able to learn from that decision and learn from the things that went wrong that you've taken forward in your life? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have. I think what I've learned is don't put yourself in extremely pressurised situations that you don't want to be in. Going back to what we said, like the my my journey with mental health, I wouldn't wish really serious depression, anxiety, trauma, post-traumatic stress on anyone. Having gone through a lot of those things, my empathy is such now that I, I'm a much better human mm -hmm. and I do much better work and I strive to connect to people in a deeper way. So going back to our point before about trying to spin shit into gold, it was a very shitty experience and I went through a lot, but I've really grown as a person from it and it's informed 
how I live my life and the work that I do and the type of work that I want to do moving forward. And, and I, you know, like when I, when I do my work with the queer community now, like I want to save kids from going through quite as bad a time as I had. Yeah. And, and I think if we get, every generation gets a bit better and a bit better, that's a very positive thing. So kind of learn from my mistakes, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I think that's my mantra. No, and, and listen, like you, you mentioned this before, but you know, we can look at the what ifs of this situation and say, what if you hadn't have gone to Cambridge? I wouldn't have had this, wouldn't have that. You don't know that that's the truth. You don't know that you might have still suffered mental health issues in a different way somewhere else. Oh, I, def- I definitely would have done. Yeah, I and I think it's important done. to recognise that. But it's also, again, you've, you can now take what you learnt from that. And, you know, as you say, we... we we should say yes to everything because, you know, we, we don't know where it's going to take us, but you also have the power to say no if it doesn't feel like it's right for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, was, I would think that people listening that are like, oh, what a twat, like he's complaining about getting such an amazing opportunity. I'd say like, yes, I, I am a twat. But also the lesson that I think I want everyone to take from this is like, don't always follow the path that everyone says you should or looks like worldly success mm-hmm. like listen to your heart when every opportunity comes up don't think about like what social media is telling you you should do or who you should be or what you should look like or what you should have think about what will fulfill you in the long run and yeah we have to pay our rent yeah we have to think about money or they're, they're real world pressures but past that when you're making big decisions like that just really be attuned to you and what you want and what your path is. And that's the lesson to take. Not like, oh gosh, poor me. But it's like the challenge is to really just listen to our inner selves and and be brave and follow what you want. That's, that's my message on that that's one. That's amazing advice. I feel like we, we could just leave it there. That's what you've said everything. Yeah, can we, can yeah, we finish now? I think it's going to go down. It's going to go downhill I've from said here. Everything Let's I be wanted honest. To say. But no, that's so great. And, and it does lead on to your next moment because I feel like this is kind of a different part of your life. So your second sliding doors moment is moving to East London, was during the new race scene and I met all my best friends and threw myself into the gay scene and it changed my career and personal life. So I love this moment as I feel like from how you've described it is where you really became yourself. Um, so do you want to explain kind of how you decided to make that move to East London and why this was such a sliding doors moment for you? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a story of finding your tribe. And, you know, for me specifically, it was it was the queer community and my, and my group of friends in the fashion industry and the music industry. But this is just that moment that I hope everyone listening has had where they find their people. Like it doesn't matter what your sexual identity is or your gender identity it's 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 a journey of finding those people that make you more you mm-hmm. and be not just okay with who you are but love who you are and and finding one's tribe is a journey of finding yourself because you you see yourself reflected back in them um and i and i i i, I look at younger people today i look at younger people today <laughs> and i and i see them all online in these communities and i love that they have access to information that i never had i love that they have access to community um, that I didn't have. But I also really feel sad that there's maybe a lack of that real world um, connection. Because for yeah. me, it was about the, the physical move of of going from South London to East London in a period where there was such a vibrant music scene. There was an incredible gay scene. There was this night called Family that kept changing its name to Boombox, to Golf Sale. And it was the club where all the designers went, all the musicians went. Anyone who was a bit weird and a bit of a freak went. And we found our family in each other. And it was, for me, all my favorite things. It was dressing up. It was really good music. It was hanging out with a bunch of weirdos. And I just loved it. And that's where I kind of met my tribe and really grew to like myself probably for the first time in my life. So what made you move to East London? Did you have a friend there? Like, where did you move to? So I randomly accepted a dinner invitation and I was, I don't know, just out of uni. So I didn't really go to dinner parties. I think it was probably one of the first ones I went to um, that wasn't just beer. And so there was food there, which was new for me. And... There was a girl there on the other side of the room and she said that I was a snappy dresser and I had a pair of jazzy shoes on. And I remember those two words like jazzy and snappy, they're 
right up my street. And so I made a beeline for her and we started talking. And she said, oh, I've got a room in my flat. And I ended up moving in there. And I moved in with a girl called Lou Hater, who is in a band called Neon Pony Club. And she's still an amazing musician. She's my best friend to this day. So in that moment, if I hadn't walked across the room when she said that I was a snappy dresser, the whole course of my life would change. And I probably wouldn't have moved to East London. And I certainly wouldn't have moved to that flat with those people. Um, and from that, I met everyone that's kind of my best friend now. And before this time in your life when you moved to East London, did you feel like you could have been openly yourself, so openly gay, openly who you were? Or was this kind of when that that really kind of came to the forefront for you? I, I think a lot of queer people have those little pockets. They'll have like a friend they can be themselves with. They'll have like a club they can be themselves in. And then they turn back into someone else to be around their family or around their friends or at their university or their school or their job. And that was probably the first time that I was me. Oh, it feels quite emotional talking about it. It's the first time I could be me all the time yeah. from when I woke up to when I didn't go to bed because I was out all night. It's amazing. <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I could be me all the time and I didn't have to switch back in to this other person that was repressed and unhappy. And yeah, I'm sure I was unhappy during that time. I'm sure they were, it wasn't all like laughter and cans of red stripe. It was authentic. It was authentic. And yeah, yeah, maybe it was a bit shit sometimes, but it was, at least it was real. And I'd take shit reality over kind of fake repressed whatever any day. Yeah, no, I love that. And thank you for sharing it. And you mentioned as well that you met some of kind of your best friends at that time in your life. Are they still kind of a big part of your life and your crew now? Yeah. Definitely. I've I kind of kept a consistent group throughout that whole period um, to now, um, which has been really nice. Um, and we're all ageing quite quite gracefully, <laughs> so I'm, you are. I'm happy for that. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't like this question, but I'm going to ask it to you. What, what, what if you hadn't have moved to East London? So what if, you know, you'd have moved to somewhere else, you'd have, I don't know, moved to another country or moved somewhere else in London and not really kind of found that tribe of people? How different do you think life would be for you now? I would have found my weirdos wherever. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I also, wherever I've been in the world, I noticed that, like, everyone in, 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 in like, the Midlands and the North will find their way to Manchester or find their way to Liverpool. They'll find their way to Glasgow. You find your scene wherever you are, and then maybe you gravitate towards London, maybe you gravitate towards New York or LA or Lisbon, but the kind of, the freaks find each other eventually. So wherever I am or would have been in the world, I think I would have found a similar group of of misfits. Um, Yeah, I think I would have done. I think I would have done. I think wherever I'd been and wherever I go in the world, I've been so, so lucky to, to travel. And I always managed to find like that bar or that, bookshop or that art gallery where the people like me are and I've realized now I think social media has revealed this to everyone that that tribes your tribe is not about a location it's about an outlook and a way of life and I would probably have more in common with a kid living in I don't know Idaho yeah that's a weirdo than I do with my neighbor you know totally. we're, we're connected by values and interests and I love that and the queer community especially are connected by um shared experience yeah. which is unique and different for each of us which is beautiful but you know if I go into a weird queer club anywhere in the world I feel like I've come home so I always would have found my my people I think I hope I love that. It's such a such a lovely message as well. And it leads us nicely into your last sliding doors moment, which is starting the Queer Bible. So you said you took everything you'd been working on and gave it meaning, uh, moving from centering myself to centering my community. So this is a moment for me because it's it's when we find our purpose and something that feeds our soul and our life, it's just, it's another level of happiness. Um, so do you want to take us back um, and really explain kind of what led you, what was that moment that led you to start the Queer Bible? Sure. I I had this explained to me. I love what you said about purpose then. We have our kind of, whatever you want to call it, your core or your soul. And then you have your external bit, which is like your personality. And for me, my core was about community, people, a sense of justice or injustice. And my personality is I'm good at selling things. I'm good at talking to people. 
I can make people laugh sometimes, not always, hardly ever. And for a long time, my soul, my inside core part wasn't aligned with my outside. So I was using my other skills to do things that didn't feed me on a very, very deep level. You know, there were moments of that, but not Mm -hmm. consistently. And now through my work with the Queer Bible, my internal core, my values, what I'm here on the planet to do, what I think is important on a very deep level is aligned much close, more closely with my external skill set. And I think Mm -hmm. that, that alignment is when purpose clicks inside you and so for me I I was looking online for queer history and all the websites were really ugly there was a lot of resources out there but they just it was really hard to wade through the information and I was like in this really shallow awful way I was like wait a minute queer people are supposed to be stereotypically the most fabulous beautiful interesting people ever why don't we have a website that reflects that that has academic depth and weight but is editorially beautiful. So I didn't want to start the Queer Bible. I wanted to carry, you know, continue my shallow life of of chasing celebrities around and and getting drunk. But I I was called by that pesky universe to to do it. And I thought, you know, I've, I've got the editorial skills from working with, you know, brands like Gucci and GQ and... And I've got the experience. I've got contacts from, as I said, chasing celebrities around at parties, getting drunk for, you know, a long time. And I was like, actually, I can use my terrible shallow life now for good. And and so I was like, okay, look, here's an opportunity where I can actually not deny those bits of me, but use them for something good. So it's not bad that I'm good at talking to people or I'm good at networking or I know how to make something look beautiful and sell it. Those aren't intrinsically bad things. It's bad when you're doing it for something you, you, that doesn't make your heart sing. And I found something that really makes my heart sing. So I started yeah. the website. It, I ask my heroes to write an essay about one of their queer heroes. So you get two stories. You get the way in, the, the jumping into the story, which is from the person writing it, who you might know. They might be a famous person. They might be an activist. So that's the kind of... Um, the way in for the audience. And then you hear about a queer person that changed and affected their lives. And the essays, some of them are hilarious. Some of them are absolutely heartbreaking, but all of them engage you in a really exciting, meaningful way with queer history. And for any marginalized group, for any group that's had their history erased or hidden from them, it's the most empowering thing you can do to realize that not only are you not alone, but you are part of this incredible line lineage of people that stretch back all the way through history that we often don't get taught about and I at school wasn't allowed to be taught about it because the conservatives put section 28 in which meant that you weren't allowed to promote homosexuality so at my school it it never even got mentioned so it's the most empowering thing to connect it's 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 it makes me more angry the older I get thinking about that um but on a positive note the the queer bible then really started to connect with people and um, we've got a really good Instagram which is at Queer Bible and then I got a book deal and I was able to connect up with a, some incredible activists like Lady Phil who founded UK Black Pride and tell um, the story of, of her queer hero alongside people like Elton John's queer hero or Monroe Bergdorf or Tan France, um, Russell Tovey, Mae Martin. There's some incredible contributors there and they're all sharing their unique beautiful experience their queer experience their moments of becoming and how their connection to a queer individual helped them become the beautiful brave incredible person they are today oh it's so brilliant it's such a beautiful story and did you surprise yourself so like you know you said you were looking on the websites and you didn't see something did you surprise yourself at how good you were at actually doing all of this I don't I don't think I am good at it I, I think what I did was I created a framework for people that are really good at it to But that's still excel. clever. That's st- yeah. Well, well I, I think that's a very sweet thing to say, but I really, I really humbly have just created a space. I created a website. I create, I've got the Instagram and I've got the book. And all of those things are about me stepping back so that people that are far more intelligent and wise and brilliant than I am can tell their stories in their own unique voices. And if that's the one thing I did well, I'll take it. So thank yeah. you. 
Well, I hear so many, the queer Bible is known so far and wide. It's brilliant. And what would you say is the best thing to have come so far from the queer Bible? So obviously community is at the centre of everything that you do. Often a queer community, I talk a lot of positively about it, but there are a lot of issues within the queer community. There's a lot of internalised misogyny. There's a lot of internalised racism and colourism and and all sorts of terrible things that we've let bleed into our culture because we grow up in a straight cis culture. And so we're going to have a lot of the, the trauma and the damage from that and a lot of the toxic parts of that culture. So for me, what's been really exciting is about hosting live events, having the book, having the website and the Instagram, where we bring disparate parts of our community that often are siloed off in their own venues because really where do queer people have to go they nightlife we we go out clubbing and for better or worse i think it's great when people can be with people that are just like them that's really important for safe spaces but the negative of that is that the white gay guys will be in one place the 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 black trans community might feel safe in their own space and that's really beautiful but it means that it's far and few between that we get to come together uh, not just different gender identities and sexuality but different ages yeah. i want to i want to hear the stories of our queer elders um i want them to be center stage so for me the thing that's been most exciting about all the events and projects i do is it's about the intersectionality it's about where we come together you know i did this event the other day i mentioned before in the, in the house of st barnabas in soho and i looked out and i was like this is such a representative cross-section of our community there was Every, like almost every group I could think of were represented. And I was like, where, where else would I get to be in a space with these people and learn from yeah. these people and be inspired by these people? And it also be a safe space. So that's probably what I love the most. I could, couldn't tell you what other people love, but I love the intersectionality. I love it, the coming together and realizing, yes, we are different. Yes, we all have unique experiences, but there's a common thread of humanity and community that links us. And we have so much to, to learn from each other and be inspired by. And there's a strength in us coming together as a community. And I'm so humbled to be part of that. And it, it, that's the stuff that makes me kind of have to go in the toilet and have a cry and then come back out and be a... No, but it's, it's, it's hitting me in the same way. The way you describe that event, it's like, it, it's what you do, everything you do. And it, it's so beautiful and it's just so... It's so we learn from anyone and everyone and to have all of those different types of people all together is just brilliant. And what's your ultimate goal and what are your visions for the Queer Bible and what's like coming up? Where do you want this to go? I, I want to continue to to tell or allow other people rather, that's really important, to tell their own stories and their own voices. And I'm working on a podcast, which is going to be really exciting. There's a trailer up now. Um on all your streaming platforms, just search Queer Bible. Um, and then, I don't know, I'm not precious about what medium I do it in. I don't care mm-hmm. if it's more website or if it's newsletters, live events, another book, documentaries. I don't, I don't, I'm not precious about that. For me, it's about telling queer stories that have been hidden and erased and allowing people to tell their own stories in their own voices and putting them front and center um, where they belong. So that's the journey, and I'm really open to the to the universe and the people I meet and the and the the kind of the paths that open up before me. I'm, I'm working a lot with yeah. with Queer Britain at the moment, um, helping them fundraise, and that's brilliant. Um, they're they're a, a queer museum in in King's Cross, and they're they're growing. And so there's so many other people that are doing really exciting work that I want to support and amplify. So yeah, just more of the same, really. And I'm very open to what the universe has in store for me. I love open to the universe, just kind of bring to me what should happen. Um, And I think this is such a brilliant moment because what I love is, is that one idea that you had for the website has not only changed your life and kind of fed your soul, but it's changed the lives of so Mm. many others. It's that ripple effect. And again, I'm going to ask you the question that you don't like, but how different do you think your life would be now if you hadn't have started the Queer Bible? I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. It's, it's... It's helped my personal life. It's helped me mentally, psychologically, spiritually. Um, the people I've met have just enriched my life. I've been so blessed. And if I could go back in time, um, if I could go back in time and talk to like 13-year-old, 14-year-old Jack that was giving up on life and was completely overwhelmed and just saw like, pain and suffering and the cruelty of, of 
of humanity and could tell him how many amazing, kind, beautiful people he's going to meet and the the incredible things he's going to get to do and be part of. I think that's my one regret, that when I was younger, I had no idea how amazing life could be. And I, I think my message is for people listening, that if you're having a really hard time and you're really overwhelmed, just know that that change is possible and that mm-hmm. if you're having one of these sliding doors moments when things just feel completely hopeless and awful, just know that whichever path you take, there is hope and possibility and beauty and brightness. Because I never dreamed, I don't think I even dreamed I'd make it to this age, genuinely. Yeah. And I certainly didn't believe that I would be here and be so happy and fulfilled and blessed. And so I guess at the end of this journey and conversation, I, what I'm taking is that I'm just really grateful for all those sliding doors moments. And even if they led me down a shitty, horrible, traumatizing path, they all led to here. And for that, I'm grateful. Oh, Jack, you've been so brilliant. And I think that's such a lovely way to end the conversation. Really, you know, we'd all love to talk back to ourselves, but I think we can also take such gratitude and such happiness from knowing that you've got to the space where you've kind of you can reflect back and think that way and it's been so insightful everything that you've said I love the queer bible keep doing what you're doing can't wait for the podcast and thank you so much for opening up about all your sliding doors moments today do you know what it wasn't nearly as painful as I thought it would be and I think it's actually been really cathartic so thank you very very much good and you're still alive which is the best thing yeah still alive (laughs) thanks so much Jack take care thank you bye bye Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.